she had this very deep longing for emotional contact, but also tremendous fear of it. And that was, I think, the battle, the core of it that, that drove that split. Welcome to the A Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast brought to you by the ACO. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Each month, we feature a case presentation, interview, or discussion by one or more of our doctors who practice a different kind of psychiatry. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at organomy.org. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. We'd love for you to leave a rating and review. If you listen to Spotify, you can now rate us on the app. If you're interested in attending one of our webinar presentations, you can meet the doctors and join in on the discussion afterwards. You can connect with us and learn more at ergonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. This episode features the audio from one of our webinars. Dr. Susan Marcel and I discuss the care of her patient Miriam, who had a psychotic break and required medicine and hospitalization. What stands out, however, is how Dr. Marcel understood how much more she needed and that medicine and stability through hospitalization were just the tip of the iceberg. Listen in to hear how Dr. Marcel patiently connected with Miriam and allowed a trusting doctor-patient relationship to develop so that Miriam could learn to tolerate her intense zest for life and strong emotions so that she could stay integrated and clear and live life to the fullest. I'm happy to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Susan Marcel, whose presentation is entitled Connecting with a Troubled Teen Through Trust and Music. Dr. Marcel is a board-certified psychiatrist and clinical associate of the ACO. She's in private practice in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Marcel. Thank you, Dr. Barrett. It's a pleasure to be here. So Dr. Marcel, maybe we can just start by saying um, how is it that you decided to present this patient of all the patients that you're seeing? Uh, why, why her and why today? Uh, wow, good question. Um, the first thing that gripped me about this patient uh, was the first phone call with her mother, the heartbreak in the mother's voice as she told me the story um, and just how sick her daughter was. And I have a daughter and I could relate to it very easily. Um, it was very, very sad and, and shocking to hear. So. so so, what did this mother say on the phone call? What was going on? Right. So the mom called me. Uh, she was referred to me from another colleague who knew that I practiced, uh, you know, psychiatry in a way that really looked at the whole person and not just prescribed medicine. And this, this mother told me the story of her daughter is 17 or was 17 at the time. She's now 19. Um, and she was active, healthy, um, musically talented, social, extroverted. And very suddenly she became very sick, psychotic, paranoid, disorganized. It, it was like dramatic with no, we don't really know why it happened, but it just happened. So wow. um, they were they were stunned and heartbroken. They lost their daughter in a sense. So, so it's, it was the mother's, when I think about it, I was thinking about it this morning, the mother's voice on the phone was like, somebody help me, help my daughter, help me help my daughter. She was desperate. Yeah. Yeah. 
And what is this patient's name? Her name is Miriam. Miriam, yeah. I see. So where did you go from that first phone call uh, next? So, um, you know, I took the history, you know, and really listened to to be sure I I was the right person for her. Because one of my concerns was that she needed to be in the hospital because she was decompensating so much. Um, So I made an appointment for her. I was able to see her, uh, you know, within two days. And when she came in, she literally could not get through the door. She was so, you could see the terror in her face and her eyes and the parents were standing behind her, just bewildered and- and, um, She was frozen in fear? Frozen in fear. She, she leaned in very politely, shook my hand with this kind of fake smile, but the, her eyes just showed this tremendous amount of fear and mistrust. She didn't trust me. I could tell she didn't want anything to do with coming into my office. So her parents kind of ushered her in and, you know, I offered her a seat and, um, you know, that, that doorway said it all, just how she was behaving, just told me what was coming in and what, what I had to, where I had to start to, to work with her. She was terrified. Wow. And, and so when you say she decompensated, you, you basically, it sounds like you're saying she was this all American young girl who was um, doing well in academics, yep. enjoyed music and sports. And then now here she is frozen in fear, unable to function and get through the day. Correct. Correct. Mm. Yeah. She couldn't attend classes. She, she was having trouble when she did go to school. She was having trouble socially interacting with her peers, trouble getting her work done. She was a straight A student. Grades were going downhill. Um, you know, just a musically talented in the orchestra um, track team athlete. Uh, she was very tall, thin, good athletic build, but, you know, the, the fear was just gripping her. And she was, she was very paranoid, very, very disorganized. When she came in to the office, um, I had, I asked her to sit down on the couch and um, she took this interesting posture where she would put her hands like a kangaroo and close her eyes, almost like she was in this bubble or this shell. And, and, and you, you knew she was sort of there listening in the room and the parents were sitting to the left and right of her, but, um, you know, it was, it was a dramatic thing to see. And when she came in, she would touch things, you know, it's, it, she was, it's almost like she, she couldn't see, she was like feeling her way into the office. Every, she did this, I guess she did this for the, maybe the first five, six sessions. Um, and, you know, she was trying to get oriented and she was terror. The terror was, was just in control of her. She was not able to, to, to just find a way to just, okay, I'm here. My parents are here. I'm okay. She knew she wasn't okay. I think on some level. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like you're describing, she's so afraid she's disoriented and, and just trying her best to feel things out. And, and so how did you handle that? Well, uh, I saw her a couple times in, in like a two week window. I saw her five times because I knew this was very serious and that I I wanted to try to keep her out of the hospital. So during one of the first five sessions, when she was doing this posturing, I asked her if it'd be okay if I touched her, her hands with, with, um, with my fingers And, and she nodded. And so she's like this. And I just put my fingers in her hands and I asked her to squeeze my hands and she did gently. And and then she just relaxed and let go and leaned into her mom and just started sobbing and crying. 
And it was very dramatic and, and very sad to see. And, you know, I think somewhere she knew just how sick she was and how much pain she was in. She was scared. She was sad. Um, and in those first five sessions, I did start her on medication to help her sleep um, and to help her be a little bit more organized. But even with the medicine and the therapy, she continued to, um, you know, I say decompensate, but she was more erratic. She was, she was more depressed. I think that was coming up more sadder. And then she would get these wild outbursts and just run outside and run around and run in traffic. And um, oh, wow. she was up through the night, waking up all her, her family members. And it was very troubling, you know, because there was a current concern that, you know, she could do something that would injure herself. So you know, we, we, I wasn't sure where it was going to go. And that, that's kind of the theme of working with her. I never knew what was walking through the door and she was so disorganized and, and so paranoid and, um, and so anxious and clearly quite sad. Dr. Marceau, when you say disorganized, you mean that she's not functioning in a, um, either a logical way or, you know, like sleeping at a normal time, Correct. um, behaving in a way that appropriate to her age and so forth. Right. Exactly. Exactly. She would say things inappropriately. She'd butt in conversations and say very odd things. Um, her sleep wake cycle was off. She'd be up through the night, sleeping during the day, um, really disrupted. Wow. And so uh, um, you were working with her and her parents together in the office for those initial appointments? Sure. I usually do that. I usually have um, uh, parents involved in uh, a teenager's care, the teenagers that I take care of, uh, because what's going on at home is so vitally important. I want to know what's happening, how our sessions and my interventions may be affecting them positively or negatively. And uh, the parents are a vital piece of uh, someone's, a, a teenager's uh, treatment. And the parents were very amenable. They were, they're desperate. You know, as I said about the mother, the father was involved he was great. And, and they were, they were heartbroken. So um, I had them come in those first five sessions, actually the first six sessions, they were in every session um, just because I needed them. I didn't know what was going on. She couldn't give a history. It was, you know, she couldn't tell me really what was happening. Um, so. And it also sounds like what was important about um, having the parents there, you mentioned how afraid she was and, and, how she didn't trust you, but it, it sounds as if you being there with the parents and, and her maybe being aware that her parents trusted you, yes. she could uh, be helped to learn to trust you at least to some minimal level until you could have a direct relationship with her. I, I think that's very true. It's a good point. I think the mother, her mother had, uh, Miriam's mother had this intuitive sense about what Miriam needed. And um she was very present, uh, and, you know, and that's what Miriam needed. She needed, she was so much wanted that safety of mom's arms. You know, she would lean on her mother and hold her mother's hand sometimes, but oftentimes she was in that, that posturing that um, felt like that was like a little safe bubble that she would create for herself. But her, her mom played a vital role, um, I think, emotionally. Hmm. Dr. Marcel, the other thing that, that stands out about even just these initial five appointments is that you had a sense that it wasn't clear whether hospitalization was necessary for her, although 
that has become the standard of care in some sense of that you automatically go to hospitalization if someone's psychotic, and that may be the answer, uh, or it may not be. And it sounds like you were trying to struggle through seeing what you could, where you could get with her, what was happening, how much the medicine, how much your trust could develop, uh, rather than just a knee-jerk reaction, oh, she's psychotic and she has to be hospitalized. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the parents didn't want her to be in the hospital. And, and, but I, in the first phone call, I said that might be a possibility, but let's try to work together and, and keep her out of the hospital. Um, you know, my fear was if she had to be hospitalized, that she would shut down even more or just get medicated. And, you know, you, you could sense that she was in there. You know, when I touched her finger in her hands and she squeezed, like she was there, she connected with me somehow, I could feel it. And she, she was able to cry in her mom's arms. I think that was the, the, the fourth session that that happened. Um, and I, I was afraid of losing that, you know, hospitalizations can, you know, they, they have their place and they can, they can create a place of safety, but uh, I guess I was trying to avoid that kind of disruption in her life. It can be jarring too. Yeah. So, so what happened next, Dr. Marceau? So it was in the fifth session that um, we had to make a decision because she was clearly not doing well with what I was doing, you know, and the medicines that I had her on and the talking and trying to work with the parents. Uh, she was getting more agitated. She, what, what changed was she would get very depressed and then she would pop out and have these ex kind of explosive verbal tirades and and the parents started getting pretty scared. So together we made this decision to hospitalize her. And um, she was in, a in the hospital for two weeks. And um, that was a really difficult decision for all of us. Um, but she was not safe at home. And yeah. as it should be, it should be a difficult decision. Yeah, yeah. oh, sure, sure. Um, but if she were to have stayed at home, I you know, I was, I was worried for her safety that she could mm -hmm. be injured, harmed or harm her family. Um, and, uh, you know, and it, it was a very tough decision and um, not made lightly. Yeah. And, and what came next? So she was in the hospital two weeks and I did not see her during that time. Uh, but the parents called me frequently and they, they went to visit her every day. And, she basically shut down you know, she just shut down. And um, I think the contraction that happened, her mistrust went way up. She didn't trust anything. She didn't want to take any medicine. At least when I was first seeing her, she would take the medicine from her parents. And, but when she got to the hospital, she said no to medicine. And it was a battle every time medication time came around. Mm -hmm. uh, she would spend lots of time in her room, just curled up in a ball or she would pace the hallways, just talking to herself. Um, it was clearly that, clear that she was hallucinating according to the mother's description. Um, and she was more mistrustful. You know, she would meet with the social workers, the nurses, the doctors, and, um, and but she just got more and more shut down and, and more distrustful and paranoid, even though being on a, you know, a lot more medication than I had her on. So, um, it makes you wonder to what level they were addressing her mistrust and, and um, her difficulty that, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I, it seemed very 
mechanical, like the, she would spend maybe 10, 15 minutes with the uh, hospital psychiatrist for medication adjustments. And there, and then there was one nurse that knew her from what the mother said, and then one social worker that they would meet, she would meet with, and they had meetings during the two weeks to determine what was going to happen after she was discharged. But it, she was safer, but she wasn't better emotionally, yeah. you know? So yes, she was, she wasn't having erratic outbursts, but it, it kind of just held her for a while while everyone figured out, well, what, what do we do next? Yeah. And it sounds like they focus on the symptoms rather than who is this person in front of me? How is she functioning? Uh, what does she need? Where is she having difficulty? Correct. Right. And that, in, I mean, psychiatry, we use DSM-5, a book, uh, the manual. So you have a checklist of symptoms. And I think that that the hospital was using that. She met symptoms of schizophrenia and she fit the bill and, you know, the check bo- the boxes were checked off, but, you know, the, the teenager that was in front of them, they were missing that. And um, she probably sensed that when I think about, you know, what it might've been like for her, she knew she was on her own. She knew nobody really got her except her parents. Her parents came in and um, that, that was very helpful. I think had they not tried to visit her, that would have been, would have been even more uh, painful for her. Yeah. And and then what happened? Well, um, she, she came back to see me, like she got, she was discharged after the two weeks and uh, I started, and she was also in a day program. So uh, post-hospital stay, it, it's meeting basically in groups with other teenagers with a social worker. Um, so she was getting some contact with other people, but she was still very guarded. Um, and then I met with her weekly. And um, so I, she, the mistrust she didn't trust me at all because I was just one of those doctors and I was giving her medication. So she kind of put me in that, in that same category as the hospital staff. And, um, you know, we had lots of talks about medication and about, you know, taking care of herself and, um, you know, how she got along with her family. And it it was, you could just tell she really didn't want to let me in. And um, so I had trouble connecting with her and, because of the mistrust. Um, so that was session, I guess, number six, seven, eight. And then Dr. Marcel, if I can interrupt you for a second, yeah. if, if you have this feeling like she doesn't even want to open up about some of these things, how did you handle that? What did you do when you're trying to ask a question and she's maybe not answering or, or how did that come out? What did she look like? Yeah. Well, I knew not to push her. Okay. Because I felt that if I pushed her, because I thought she was quite fragile um, and I didn't, I didn't want to be prescriptive and, 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 you know, tell her you have to do this. And that's uh, what I found out later was the, the hospital psychiatrist was very authoritarian and prescriptive and she did not go for that at all. Um, I didn't know that right at the time, but intuitively I knew not to push her. So there were times where we just sat quietly together and, just sat and it would be just her and I, or her, I and her mother, um, or I'd have the mother come in and then leave. And it really depended on what, what it felt like, what was needed at the time. So I tried to stay flexible. And then, 
it was challenging because I, you know, I didn't really know what was going on inside of her. And she always complained about the medicine that, and she eventually did agree to take the medicine. I think because she, she saw that it was calming her down a bit because she was quite anxious um, with the mistrust and the fear. And tell me um, if this is accurate, Dr. Marcel, but I would imagine if she's complaining about the medicine, you're not going to be arguing back with her about X, Y, Z. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, no. Well, what well, the metaphor we developed was um, a Band-Aid, you know, that medicines were Band-Aids. Sometimes you need a Band-Aid, you know, you, you have a wound, you ca- have to cover it, even though you don't like it, it, it you know, it might interrupt how you move or how you function. And um, there was this one session, if I could tell you about this one session where sure. she brought she brought her phone in. And normally I ask patients to turn their phone off uh, or you know, put it on mute or, or airplane mode. And I did with her and she came in and she started playing music and it's like, this is different. You know what, how come this session she's playing music? And it was a, it was a Taylor Swift. I can't remember the name of the song. It was a Taylor Swift song. And I actually knew some of the words. So she started singing it in session. Like, okay, this is different. And I started singing along with her. And this thing happened between us where she looked at me like, you know, Taylor Swift, you know, this song. <laughs> And we were singing together and like things just changed after that. It's like, I got past some barrier. Like, okay, she's cool. She knows Taylor Swift. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and it, you know, our eyes, our eyes connected. That's really what happened in the session. She finally saw me, you know, I wasn't just some idea in her head or somebody she wanted to argue with. It was, she really saw me that I was there and that I could connect with her with the music. And so that, that, became kind of a theme for the rest of our our work together was she loved music she was very musically inclined she played three instruments and um you know she always wanted to talk about the music and um so she knew I love music I mean I, I play piano and and guitar and you know I shared that with her and so that you know she would lean in and want to talk more about that so so, so, that's, so that's, that it really it really changed things. It really changed the tone of our work together. Yeah, and it, it sounds like um, what you said is very important. Though she could actually see you. You know, you described in the beginning how she closed her eyes and kind of had this contracted can picture where she was just kind of defending herself. And then she actually looked up and looked at you and said, "Hey, you're you're somebody I can trust. You're somebody who maybe gets me to some degree. That's yeah. wonderful." Yeah, yeah. It's one of those moments where you know, when you remember when someone you're working with someone, just there's those pivotal moments that things just click and it's very spontaneous. And she was a very spontaneous teenager, uh, but that was, that had been, you know, contracted pretty severely, but, you know, in the beginning, but then once that musical exchange happened between us, it, it, she started functioning differently. You know what I'm thinking? And and if you weren't aware of, to be flexible with her, to be open and, and pay attention to what she needs. You could have told her to turn the phone off and, and that right. would have been devastating. Yeah. No, I think the music was her lifeline. I think music yeah. soothed her. She would listen to songs and many of the, she would bring her phone in often and play songs, artists I didn't know, but the, clearly the songs had themes in them of longing and love and angst and, and just things that were probably she was experiencing, but she couldn't say it, but the song said it. So yeah. she was using the music to, to express it. Wow. 
And then how did things progress from there? So right after that, the pandemic hit. <laughs> oh. So yeah. <laughs> so so this was what uh, March March 2020. Yeah. Um, and I, I was I was you know as we all were disrupted by the pandemic. Um, I was con- I had to go to telemedicine because I wasn't seeing people in person. So I was concerned that that disruption. It was right after the session where we played the music together and sang and. And then we're, you know, I offered, I said, I can do telemedicine sessions. The parents agreed, she agreed. And I was worried that we were going to lose that bond, but the exact opposite happened. She actually relaxed. She would do the sessions from her bedroom. And, and I got to see in a whole nother side of her, which I think helped me help her better, you know? So in spite, there's this whole crazy world out there, you know, with this pandemic, we were able to connect by telemedicine, which huh. it, it's, that surprised me. That really did. It changed how I saw how we do things, you know, whether we're doing things on zoom or online or stuff, but um, so she, she actually didn't do as bad as I thought. I thought she was going to withdraw again and that didn't happen. And so what did that look like when you were doing appointments on the computer, much like we're doing right now? Right. So she, we would start out often in her bedroom and she would show me like her dog. She had two dogs. They would lay on the bed and, you know, she was laying on the bed. And um, of course, the music, the rate she had her phone and there was music going on. So um, and then she would show me like, oh, I'm growing this plant. And so she'd pick up a plant and show me and then a new sweater that she she ordered from Amazon. Um and then there were a couple of times she was like, I'm hungry. I'm good. And she would take her, her tablet or iPad and take it down to the kitchen with her, get her snack. And we're talking and I'm listening. And, and she's showing me, you know, she introduced me to her other family members or here's my backyard. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's like I got to see her world and meet some of her family members that I hadn't met yet. And um, that was kind of delightful. And she was very happy to show me her little bubble, her world. Yeah. And um, it, it, it became a way for us to connect because I said, so how's your dog doing, you know? <laughs> and um, so it gave us more connections and, and she started relaxing um, and there was less arguments about or, or disagreements about the medication. I think she saw that I was, I was an ally and that I was, I was willing to kind of meet her where, where she was. Yeah. It almost sounds as if the, the, the disconnection of the computer allowed her to connect more because there was some of that safety, but also allowing her to, to show you more and and allow you in. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Did the pandemic uh, affect her directly? Did she have feelings about it? Did did it affect her life in a. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, she went to virtual classes, so she was on zoom classes uh, four to six hours a day. Uh, and she found that pretty taxing and, um, she got her work done. Uh, it was challenging for her, but she didn't have to have this social interaction with people as much. And I think that might've helped her, uh, initially, I think it, it also isolated her. So I think she was a little bit lonely. Um, and, so to cope during the pandemic, the, one of the things her school allowed was the track team was still able to run outside. So she decided to join the track team again, um, you know, and then, uh, you know, her senior year was wrapping up and 
she was getting ready to go to college and um, this was door all during 2020, 2021 and colleges were virtual. So she was taking classes and, um, and yet she found, you know, she, she found school friends to connect with, you know, in track. And also, um, she would play her, she played piano, guitar and violin and the orchestra wasn't, uh, her school orchestra wasn't playing, but she found people to play with and, and they would do it virtually. They would do it on, on you know, on zoom. Meaning I'm playing my instrument here. You're playing your instrument there. Yeah. 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 Can you imagine that? No, (laughs) (laughs) I can't either. But, um, you know, it was clear that she was thriving on some level, which surprised, again, surprised me. I thought, you know, you're shut down, but for her, she, she found a way to make it work and her family really pulled together, you know, then the importance of her parents, her siblings, her extended family, there was a grandmother, grandfather. Um, So she had that kind of support. Uh, and you know it helped you know being on the track team and then being able to play music and and express those things she was the music became a vehicle for her to express things that she maybe couldn't say hey I'm sad you know she was able to pick a song and the song would say it you know but but it, it was delightful the pandemic is you know it was it was a beautiful thing to watch her bloom in spite of this horrible thing that everybody was going through yeah yeah you know uh, I think we may have talked about that before, but there have been circumstances that have allowed people to actually rise to the occasion to 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 get things together during the pandemic, and um, things sound like they came together well for her in, in spite of everything. Yeah. And Dr. Marcel, you mentioned her parents, and I was thinking how important it must have been for her mother and father to have you um, for comfort to rely on. Uh, while they were struggling to see their daughter, you know, falling apart and being hospitalized. And um, that must have been very important for them. Sure. Well, I mean, a teenager, a child, I mean, they, they grow up in, in the family, right? And, and the parents needed support and uh, to not have the, fa- I mean, I guess it depends. I mean, if you have a very unhealthy family member, that would probably have hurt Miriam. But they were, they, they rose to the occasion. And, you know, as you said, uh, I mean, they... They really, they got her, they knew her before she got sick. They knew what she was capable of. They developed trust in me. They knew I wasn't just going to medicate her and just dismiss her, but I really wanted her to be her best self. Um, and uh, one, one thing Miriam started doing was she started journaling and she had kept a journal while she was in the hospital and the mother would, her mother would encourage her to, 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 you know, did you write in your journal today? You know, and she would write these these things that she looked back at the journal from, from the hospital stay and then, you know, post hospitalization, there was this one session that I don't know where it was, but it was during the pandemic. Uh, and she, she was sad and a little bit teary and she looked at me and said, it's okay for, I'm sad. It's okay. If I ask for help. And I think prior to all this, she wasn't able to act like I'm sick. I need help. She wasn't able to do that. And there was this quiet moment and I, I just nodded and I said, yeah, it's okay to ask for help when you need it. And again, like she was getting, developing that insight into, okay, she had had an illness. She was very mistrustful. She was scared and sad, but she could ask for help. And her parents were very important in that process. And I think I became a, 
a parent to the parents in a way. Like I, I was educating them and, you know, we'd, they'd have a lot of questions about the medicine and, you know, they would find things on Google and then say, what about this? And, you know, and I, and Dr. Google, right. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, just to help them work through what they were going through, because they were going through grief and anxiety and frustration and anger and the loss that, you know, their, their daughter, they lost that old Miriam and now it's this new Miriam. And how do we connect with her? And they were great. I mean, those parents, parents play such a key role in a child's treatment. Um, so it's, I think, important to bring them in yeah. to help her function. Dr. Marcel, when you were talking about the music, it made me think about how you must have had an idea of her disconnect between perception and excitation. You know, she has all these feelings. She has these sensations. And so yep. they're split apart. And, and, and that's essentially how we see psychosis or psychotic episode of right. all these, this excitation, emotional and, and, and sensation. And it's um, a lack of perception of what's going on. And it sounds like with, with you and her, you were able to be patient with her to allow her to see you. Right. And with music, you quickly developed that intuition that that was a way that she could uh, perceive her own emotions and sensations and, and, and integrate it, make sense of it all. Yeah. And to express all the excitement in her, she had such excitation. She was very lively, uh, but she wasn't able to, to know how best to express it. And uh, there was this one session where she brought her guitar in <laughs> and she knew I played her guitar. She's like, Dr. Marcel, go get your guitar. So I did. I brought the guitar in and uh, she started strumming along with, with a song and I didn't know the words of the song, but I, you know, I'm playing and she's telling me the chords and I'm playing. And again, she was just able to see me. She smiled. We were connecting. She was expressing. So that excitation and perception were, were more integrated and, and she was in the room. <laughs> you yeah. know, in the beginning, she was not in the room. She didn't even want to come through the door. You know, she was so split off. Um, but again, the music, uh, you know, the, it, it, the music brought us together and the, you know, my willingness to be flexible. I never knew what was coming in the door. That was, you know, we're on a telemedicine session. I never, I never really knew what to expect. It's like, okay, you know, tighten your, your seatbelts folks. <laughs> you got to deal with your own anxiety just so that you could be available to her. It sounded like. Sure. And, and as a, as a psychiatrist and an ergonomist, we use our own emotional reaction to patients to help us sense, okay, what's going on. And, I always felt this, you know, jacked up energy with her because she was so full of excitement and, and yet she didn't have perception of what to do with it or how to channel it. And the music became a, a way to, to, to express that. And you know, I don't know where she's going to go with it. I mean, she actually did a show this past December. I was thinking about this too, before uh, we started the seminar, she, she actually was able to get up on stage at this center where they, they, they were able to do like a social distancing kind of show for young people. And she got up and she actually played her piano, a song on the piano, this song and uh place went, you know, they were cheering for her. And, you know, a year and a half ago, she was, she was sitting like this. So it, it just, it, it, and she recorded it. Just like she had a friend record it and she showed it to me. And it's just amazing to see such a transformation that, you know, she was able to perceive more clearly, be excited and integrate. Although she's still, even now, as we work together, there's still times where she's not able to pull it all together because things get in the way and, you know, she's learning 
to be self-aware enough to know, okay, I'm off, you know, my yeah. eyes, my, my eyes aren't in the room. You know, she, she had this very deep longing for emotional contact, but also tremendous fear of it. And that was, I think the battle, the core of it, that, that drove that split. Yeah. And Dr. Marcel, when you were saying about her telling you to go get your guitar, it made me think of her being aware of, okay, this is what I need right now. You're my doctor. All right, help me. This is what yeah. I need you to do for me. <laughs> Just like a patient may say, all right, I need to lie on the couch. I need to work on my head or I need to lie there and breathe, or I need to talk to you about this right now. She had a sense of what she needed. She needed. Yeah. yeah. And to trust that, to trust, I, I trust my patient's ability to tell me, okay, what do you need? You know, does it make sense? You know, um, I could also see where this could also be a barrier if, if she were doing the music as a way to not want to talk about something, it could be an avoidance, but I don't, I don't think that was going on at the time, uh -huh. but I, I look for that because, you know, it, it could be that she doesn't want to talk about how sad she's feeling. She'd rather just, and I don't know, I, I, I kind of just meet, meet her where she's at. And, um, and that, that has worked again. And I, I think she knows that I, we haven't said that overtly, but I, I'm just this quiet presence and yeah. All right. Let's, let's do that. You know? And so it yeah. gave her some sense of control over something that was very out of control for her early on. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned, so she finished up her senior year of high school and then she went to college. She's like, yeah, she's in college part-time. She's going to a community college. She works. Um, and she works with kids actually, which is kind of exciting. Um, Does she live at home? Uh, yeah, she's living at home and she's got her driver's license. She's driving. She has a few friends. Um, so little by little, you know, she's kind of building her life back uh, together. And, and one other thing I, I said to the parents, so the parents kept saying, oh, you know, what's her college life going to be? And what about her 20s? And like they were five, six years ahead. I'm like, well, let's just do today, you know, because um, they, they were getting anxious because she what her, her path was not going to be like others because she had a detour, you know, the psychosis changed how she functioned and, um, and, you know, the, trying to help them kind of just keep it in check so that we could just keep her stable now so that she can have building blocks or have, have a way to rebuild her life. And, you know, she, she, things broke and now we're repairing them and she can, she can have a very productive life. Um, that was, that was a challenge for the parents to kind of come to grips with that, that things had changed so much for her, but, uh, yeah, I she, think we're, it sounded like you were also up against this idea that I think has become unfortunate in medicine, where if someone's at risk for something, they're at risk for more depression, at risk for more psychosis, heart attack, as if it's inevitable that, that, you know, that's just your fate now. And, and not that, um, it's something we have to be aware of and, and to, um, not forget, but also that it, we don't know how the future will, will turn out. And, and that was their anxiety of the unknown. It, it sounded like that you were trying to help them with. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm reminded of a, of a patient, uh, not my patient, but someone else's patient who uh, went off to college and had a psychotic episode and she was a, a concert violinist and she ended up having a psychotic episode in college, became very disorganized, homeless, law like she just disappeared into like the homelessness population of los angeles and um the family they did eventually find her and she you know she um 
she got proper treatment and therapy and medication. And she actually came and played for a group of us uh, at a medical meeting. And she picked up her violin and started playing this beautiful, beautiful song. And, you know, she's like, I have schizophrenia. I was sick and now I'm better. And I know what I need to do to take care of myself. And just, and I think, again, in thinking about this, this patient, Miriam, I think I had this other patient in the back of my mind that you could be so sick that being psychotic isn't a death sentence. It actually, I find that some of my patients that have suffered with psychosis are some of the most creative people I've ever worked with because they think differently. They, they see things or they don't see things and they, they, they need help bringing things together. And, um, uh, well, I'll see what, I don't know where Miriam's going to go with her. You know, she's not sure what she wants to do with her career. She's taking general college classes, but um, she has some directions and psychosis, you know, taught her things, you know, and she's, she was able to take something very tragic that happened to her and make it work for her and, and using music and developing try. I mean, our relationship was really key. I, I think, you know, that, she knew she can, and she did. Sometimes she would call me like late on a Friday night. I just need to hear your voice, you know. Um, Dr. Marcel, it sounded like she knew that you trusted her and that allowed her to feel even more comfortable to, to trust you and, and, and develop that mutual trust between you two. Right. Yeah. Like she had a clear sense of how you felt about her and that you could um, trust things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was very moved by her. You know, she was, when she was present in the room, she was really, you know, when you connect with somebody, you just know, you know, each other and you connect. And, and we had that several times and um, it was like that, that lifeline. Um, and it just, it's moving to even think about it, how it happened with her several times where I, I think had she not had this kind of treatment, I don't know where she'd be. I mean, she could be, like warehouse somewhere and just on, you know, on a lot of medicine and there's this real person in there and she's, she's going to do wonderful things with her life. She's, you know, um, and she's trying to figure that out. Yeah. It, it really sounds like you didn't lose sight of, you know, if someone's saying something that doesn't make sense or they're having weird behaviors, they're still a human being, you know, and, and these days that can get lost. You know, when, when, when someone's psychotic, it's like nothing matters until they're on medicine and everything is just so. Right. Well, it's a very mechanical view of what psychosis is. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, checklist of symptoms or drugs and receptors. And it's like, no, there's a person in there, a very wounded person who needs, who needs someone just to be there for them, make it safe. That's what I did. I created a safe place for her to just kind of come out of her psychotic bubble and, and reach out with music to to just try to re-engage with the world that she found probably pretty scary and still does. She still has fears and, and, you know, we work through them, but she has more tools now than she did when she was 17. Yeah. So, But it's wonderful because um, she has you and you know that the, the more you can help her face her feelings and, and the, whatever excitation comes her way, the better she can do and handle it and not need to become psychotic to, to deal with it. Right. Yeah, that's well said. Yeah. How is she today? Actually, she's doing really well. <laughs> um, I saw her actually just yesterday 
And I don't know, there's just something so alive in her, her eyes literally sparkle, you know, when she comes in, I, I'm, I'm meeting with her now face to face. Um, and, and so we did that transition. Of, oh, I don't know when be back in June, we started meeting again, uh, face to face and, um, she's in the room, you know, hi, Dr. Marcel, how are you? <laughs> you know? Um, and, and she actually started bringing food in too. She wants to let, let's, you want some French fries? <laughs> like, <not really. laughs> but, but, you know, again, of course I'll take a French fry, you know, <laughs> um, but she's, she's very alive and, um, and it's very exciting to see, you know, that she has a chance at, at really having a full life uh, in spite of psychosis. And, and, and she took, the risk to trust me, you know, and I, and I took that very seriously. And I think that that was one of the keys to her healing was we, she had a place that she could just relax and trust. Yeah. I I think it takes a lot of courage, both as a doctor and a patient to do this kind of work. Sure. I'm sure you see this, you know, in your practice with your patients, you know, that, that, that doctor patient relationship, is I think that's that's one of the things that helps save her life and because her erratic behavior in the beginning I I was concerned she was going to run out in the traffic and hit by a car or become suicidal or homicidal or something because she didn't even know what she was doing she was really disorganized so yeah um, you know that she she had a chance to to you know she has a chance now to live her life and she's very excited you know and she gets scared and but you know, every day, it's, oh, you know, I'm alive. She has that zest for life that uh, it's kind of infectious. When she leaves, I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Marcel, is there anything else about her story that you think is important for the audience to know before we take some questions from the audience? Oh, I'd love to hear what the audience has to say. <laughs> um, no, I, th- I think we, we covered it. Yeah. One question from the audience is, have you ever came across or had any sense of what it was that had her developed that that psychotic episode before she met you? Well, I wish I knew that answer. <laughs> um, nothing directly. There's, it, it could have been, she was not using drugs, not drinking, you know, um, no head trauma, no infection, no, you know, uh, there was no trauma or, or, you know, assault or anything. I mean, I, we never really, I did a very deep history. There may have been some marijuana exposure, like she might've been in the room with somebody else, but across the room. So it wasn't even that big of a, of an exposure, but you know, I, we don't know. Uh, we don't know. And it just was really out of blue. And I think that's what made the parents so uh, confused. Like they didn't, they didn't have any way to understand, like, how does this happen? Like this yeah. can happen to just anybody. Uh, yeah, it can. So, you know, I don't, I don't know that we can answer that. Yeah. And I don't know that I have to have that answer to help her. You know, it does, I mean, it sounds like you've been helping her very well and, and you right. haven't known. So, right. I, I would have loved to know. And I think we look for those answers as doctors, like, oh, that's what it is, you know, and, and, uh, you know, we can be sure about things, but you know, that, I don't know that we'll ever know, but yeah. that, that mistrust was a, a, an issue for her. You know, I imagine that was in her even before the psychotic episode, mm-hmm. but it, it just came out and, you know, very dramatically when she was 17. Yeah. You know, me just thinking about it, um, again, if we think of psychosis being a split between perception and excitation, there must have been this tremendous excitation building in her strong feelings. And, and you know, at, she was 17 when she first? 
Seven, yeah, 17. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if any of us think of, of the feelings and excitation we had when we we're 17, you know, right. um, yeah, there must be something there. Yeah, but most of the high school students I work with, I mean, they are, many of them are very unhappy. You know, there's lots of mixed messages, the social media, you know, they got to look a certain way, Um, you know, the popular crowd is, you know, bullying, social media bullying. Um, It's really a challenge, uh, much different than when I was growing up. Um, But, you know, some, some young people maybe cope with that better than others. And I don't think Miriam had that, the, whatever was triggering her psychosis. She didn't have that ability to all that excitation that was happening in her. She was not able to integrate it in a way that um, her perception was off. And so, so know, your now, understanding of her character, does that help you see it in, in, in terms of how she may be susceptible to become psychotic? Right, right. Um, and that, I mean, that's the essence of what I, we've been doing in our work together is understanding how she functions. How does she handle her emotions? And that, that's her character. So she, when she gets scared, her eyes go off. Or when she gets very sad, she withdraws or her eyes go off. Uh, and she doesn't know what to do with all of that emotion. Um, and other characters would handle that emotion differently, but she would handle it by, by splitting. And um, I don't really use that language with her, but she understands the concept of, oh yeah, I know my eyes aren't in the room, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and she knows that, you know, um, and then she can bring it in. And the mu- again, the music, music is movement, right? It, it, you know, when anybody hears good music, you know, you feel something in, in your whole, your whole body, and your emotions. And that happened over and over and over again with her. And um, I, I think that's why a lot of young people are drawn to music because it says something to it helps it's like a release or a, a discharge of that, that excitation in a way that's, you know, maybe, you know, healthy rather than something disorganized and, and potentially harmful. Well, you know, we talk of, of some patients um, having a deep sense of wanting to, to feel things deeply and, and, and find truth. And it sounds like there's an aspect of her in that. And, and a lot of adolescents, they want to find some, some truth to what's going on in the world and, and their understanding their feelings and what's true in them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I would agree. I would agree. There's a question from the audience and it says to overcome mistrust. Is there something you, is that something you learn to do or it develops as you face your fears in therapy? How do you see it? Hmm. It's a good question. I mean, yeah. If you are in a mistrustful way, I mean, you have to have contact with yourself, I think, to know, oh, I'm, I don't trust this person. Something's off. Uh, I don't know that Miriam had that at all. And she does now. She can tell when she has reaction to someone. Um, so I don't know that I fully understand the question. What are they? I mean, my sense, is it, is that something that, the way it was written, it was like, is it something you, learn in a cognitive level or is it something that um, you feel out as you're facing your emotions and, and your fears in therapy and the way you've described it is is it took time to develop that trust I mean something that you earn as you demonstrate trustworthiness and um, that you take her seriously and, and right. have a sense of who she is 
I mean, that would be my answer. Is, is that something that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, that's a good way of putting it. I was trustworthy. I, I was always there when the phone rang. I saw her. I would take the call or I'd call her right back. Um, you know, I was trustworthy. And what I said I was going to do, I did. Or what I said I wasn't going to do, I didn't do. And, and that, that built the trust. So I don't know that it's cognitive. It is cognitive in a way, but it's experiential. It, it's yeah. you know, what happens between a doctor and a patient. Miriam and I had this back and forth. And, um, and uh, what was great about all this was her sense of humor emerged, um, like the, you know, the past couple of months, like over the summer, and that's been a delight. She comes in and she, she'll just start cracking up about something. And, and it's very spontaneous. You can see she's this happy woman or young woman now. Um, so that through the experience of trusting me, she can relax and just, you know, make a joke and she'll tease me about something in my office or, or you know, something I said, and, uh, you know, because I'm much older than her. So, you know, she's like, Oh, Dr. Marcel, nobody says that anymore. <laughs> nobody uses <laughs> Facebook anymore. <laughs> right. Right. So another question is, is this something she's open about with friends? Or, or does she keep it to herself? Yeah, she keeps it to herself. Um, that's, I think she's afraid to be judged. You know? Yeah. So. Although she does have one other friend that does see a psychiatrist for therapy. And um, I believe she shared some things with her about her work with me. Um, but I, you know, I think she's a little bit cautious about that and maybe for good reason. You know, I think so. Yes. I mean, these days when people are out and about, about everything, you know, that in some ways, it's been nice to, to get over some of the stigma of mental illness and, and having therapy and treatment. But on the other hand, there's almost so much out there that, uh, especially with people you can't trust, they can be used against you, you know? Right. And well, one of the things that we discussed a lot was the use of social media, um, because that that had during the pandemic, that was a bit of a challenge because the kids weren't able to be together except it's track practice. So, you know, it'd be there, they'd all be on various social media platforms. And some, some of the people on there were actually pretty brutal and, and mean. And she's like, she, she came to this decision, like, I, I'm just not going to go on there anymore. And she's like, I feel a lot better because, and you know, she's not swimming in all of that, that craziness. So, um, you know, but she came to that herself and, um, and so she, she's careful, I think, with who she shares, what, and that's, that's part of the mistrust, right? She's got to feel out, is this somebody I can trust with the fact that, you know, I had a psychotic episode. Um, so, you know, that, that's probably future work that we'll do together. It's like, how do you, how do you, how do you tell people about that? Uh, if you do, I don't know. I, I think everybody's different. Yeah. So there's a question uh, from the audience. Have I ever dealt with a, a similar uh, patient before? And the patient that comes to mind is she's now about 26 years old. And it was very clear from me to me when we first met how mistrustful she could be. I mean, she, when I took her history, when we first met, uh, she said that I was her, I think, 11th therapist. Wow. And, so that was almost the most important thing that we discussed. And, and I didn't let that go in, in terms of, you know, what happened with these therapists, you know, um, um, she found something about all of them that just wasn't right. And she could find anything. And, and so that came up with me of, you know, 
if I said lay instead of lie, or if I, she could find something that she didn't like about me. And it was very important for me to hear her out and understand what that was about. And, and she needed to let me know what, what she wasn't happy about with me. And we've been seeing each other now for two years and she's doing wonderfully, but wow. that was always on my mind, how mistrustful she could be and how she could have this exquisite sensitivity to things, but also this split between her feelings and her perception of them. So, so my training, you know, with, with the college and really having an understanding of someone's character and, and the difficulties that they can run into because of it um, was really helpful uh, with some of these patients. Oh, it, it's invaluable. It's yeah. absolutely valuable. I was thinking today when I, I was out walking my dog before the, the webinar and I thought, you know, trust isn't something that's you've given a little pill, <laughs> you know, and, and Miriam's number one problem was her mistrust. There's no pill on earth that can give trust. And it has to happen between like with you and your patient, me, me with Miriam. That's not something you medicate. It's something that happens spontaneously between a doctor and a patient. And that was the essence of her problem. I mean, pills mask symptoms and they're, you know, they're vital. It, it absolutely helped her, but the deeper problem that she had of mistrust and that, that in her character you know, that's what we've been addressing every time she comes in. That's what you're addressing with your patient. So, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not a simple mechanical, here's a pill. Okay. You're going to trust people. That, that, that's crazy. <laughs> and yet I think, I think that's how at least my traditional training as a psychiatrist, it was, it had, it had the person in it, but it was often very much dominated by a medical model. And there is a medical piece to what happens when someone becomes psychotic? There are real changes physiologically in their body, in their brain, but that's one piece of them. What about the whole way that they function? And yeah. that that's, I think my training at the college has really taught me to look at that and address all of that. When you were talking, it made me also think just about how I think even just the inherent trust between a doctor and a patient has changed where it used to be just being in your position there was at least some base level of trust that uh, may still be there for some patients, but for others, I'm not sure you're any different than any schmo on the street, you know, that you have to earn it. Um, maybe even harder sometimes. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, no, the doctor patient relationship uh, is, is vital. And I, I remember my relationship with my doctors growing up when I was a kid and they were, they were really important to me and, and lifelines. So I don't know. I think that maybe the mistrust of the medical profession or uh, um, just that break, there's lots of barriers between doctors and patients now. And I think being trustworthy, that that's really what I was with Miriam was just being very trustworthy and showing that session after session after session um, with the parents and, and with Miriam. Yeah. There's key. another question, Dr. Marcel. Would you bring up the music connection in future therapies in an attempt to make contact and establish trust? With other patients? Yes. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I love music. I, I mean, I have a piano in my one office and I have a guitar and um, I'm actually thinking of getting other instruments too because you know it's something I enjoy. So why not? You know, I have toys in my office that the kids play with, you know, when they come in and 
Uh, some of my adult patients, <laughs> they they play with the toys and they I have I have a couple of adult patients that are are musicians and they they see the piano and they go right for it. So I mean it could it could interfere, but I mean I guess it depends on what's the function of the music. Is the music a bridge or is it a barrier? For Miriam, it was a bridge, you know, but in maybe someone they may use the music to avoid expressing something or to to not talk about what's bothering them or not not be able to 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 open up so. yeah i'm thinking I, I have a keyboard in my office too and i have a patient who's very very depressed very reserved uh, has a very difficult time speaking up and i will sit with her when she plays and it's just this other side of her that doesn't come out and in, in, in other contexts and it's wonderful because it's not just <laughs> out in the open and playing music but you know i'll ask because i know very little about music i'm learning myself Oh, what is this symbol? What does this mean? Oh, that's, you know what that, come on, come on, Dr. Burr, you know what that is. And it's this <laughs> kind of feisty side of her, you know, a little bit of aggression. And it's just, it's so wonderful to see. Sure. Um, and, and that's the only way I've been able to, to make contact with that part of her is, is just having her have some level of confidence with what she's doing and, and me being the one of what, I don't know how that, you know, what is that? What is that note? <laughs> uh, it's so wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't learn about music in my residency, you know, the, <laughs> uh, you know, that, but it's something, I mean, doctors are human beings, you know, we bring who we are into the room. And, you know, if, if an interest of mine is also something the patient is interested in, that could be a great way to, to build a bridge and, um, and, and let aggression come out or let sadness come out or, or anxiety or whatever, and, and, to, and just be able to connect. Yeah. So. Maybe the last question we'll take is, were the parents ever in their own therapy? Not with me, per se. I mean, really, my role with them was really to, to be a support to them as they supported Miriam. Um, but uh, each of the parents I know has in the past have seen other therapists as, um, but that was established before they had seen me with Miriam. Um so, uh, that, so that I think they had some degree of insight into emotions and therapy. And I think that's why they were so agreeable and amenable to the work I was doing with Miriam, that they had had some of their own work. Dr. Marcel, this has been a wonderful discussion. Is there anything else you'd like to leave the audience with be, before we uh, wrap it up? Um, I, I guess just for anybody listening in the audience that you know psychosis is treatable and you know to look at the whole person that it's not just a checklist of symptoms it, it really is everything we've been talking about here and i think you know we've said it all and that to just trust that spontaneous process in therapy thank you dr marcel yeah thank you dr Barrett. How do you feel after listening to this case? What do you think? I am always struck with Dr. Marcel's genuine open and caring attitude toward her patients, which I think makes her particularly helpful to patients like Miriam who need someone they can trust and who will support them. I have no doubt that her openness to go with the flow with Miriam as she began to reveal herself through music made a world of a difference. We are interested in your questions and comments, and I would love to hear your feedback. Send an email to aco at 
Stay tuned for our next episode, and we'd love to have you join us for one of our webinars. The best way to help the ACO spread its knowledge is by letting others know about us. I hope you share this podcast with your friends and family and let them know about our work. You can connect with us at orgonomy.org or a different kind of psychiatry.com. I'm Dr. Chris Burrett. Thank you for listening to the Different Kind of Psychiatry podcast with the ACO. Since 1968, the psychiatrists affiliated with the American College of Orgonomy have been helping patients discover greater satisfaction, health, and overall well-being in their lives. Whether patients suffer with mental illness, struggle with addiction, or feel unsatisfied with their work lives or relationships, medical orgone therapy as practiced by the physicians at the ACO offers a way forward, often without the use of medication.